Well, hello there. Welcome back to Shannon's Lumber Industry Update. Today is episode 58, and I'm going to be talking about spalting and staining and basically extractives and enzymes and all the fun, gooey center of lumber that gives it a lot of its interesting character. I've had some all um, some good questions that kind of center around this topic. So here again, I'm trying to group your questions uh, into themes as much as possible. But, you know, just to keep everybody interested, I do a few uh, wild cards in there as well. So as always, I want to say thank you to all of my new patrons. I want to say thank you to all of my existing patrons. Uh, you guys definitely make this show possible. If you are interested in being one of the cool kids... Go to patreon.com slash lumber update and you can sponsor the show there. So in industry news, uh, I came across an advertisement for uh, from the company Beck for a wooden nail system. And I was thinking, I can't remember the headline exactly, but I was like, whoop-de-doo, wooden nails. Those are called pegs. <laughs> like They've been around for thousands of years. Not that big of a deal. But this company has made wooden nails that can be driven pneumatically. So think of your average pneumatic nail gun, and this thing shoots. They look like pencils. They look like wooden pencils. And uh, it's, a, it's an Austrian company called Beck, and I think I said that. But the nails come in a couple of different lengths and a couple of different diameters. Basically, they are... Um, about five thirty seconds in diameter up to just under a quarter inch. I can't remember the, the metric. It's like, uh, oh, I don't remember now off the top of my head. And then, you know, they come in like framing nail lengths, like two and a half, three inches down to like one inch long. So these are sizable. These are like nails. You know, think of your average framing nail. They're going to be the similar diameter, similar length to them. And just like framing nails or any pneumatic nailer, you're not drilling pilot holes. You're just, you know, having fun, pulling the trigger, boom, 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 shoot nails into the wood. And they're saying the same thing here. You don't have to drill a pilot hole. And in fact, the the heat caused from the friction of driving that nail into whatever the substrate is you're nailing actually welds the lignin together. So not only do you not need glue, you'll never be able to pull this peg this wooden nail out because it is welded at a molecular level well i don't know if we can say molecular level yeah i think you could probably say molecular level um they've got all kinds of um cross-section drawings where they've driven a nail in and then uh, uh cut it down the nail so you can see how it's bonded the wood beneath it they've got microscopic images that show that lignin welding so this is pretty cool but more than anything it's just badass looking. <laughs> I mean, the nails come in a round cartridge, like a drum cartridge, and it you know fits in this drum assembly on the back. It looks like any average you know nail gun you would see. It's obviously a little bit bigger because of the size of that cartridge, but it's just really cool. I mean, vampire hunters of the world rejoice because this is a really cool way to deliver a solid beach nail. And I should say that the other thing they're pushing on this is that the nails are made from sustainable beach plantations. And of course, because you're talking about really small nails, there's a whole subset of trees that can be used for this. So a lot of the beach that's being felled specifically for lumber, there's going to be um, offcuts and branches and all kinds of, of, quote, waste wood that comes out of normal uh, forestry operations and beach forests forests that this can be used for making small nails and things like that. So, you know, there's a sustainability uh, factor here as well, but where this is getting used primarily now is in CLT or cross laminated timber applications where they're using the nails to lock together the various laminations. So think of like in the average furniture shop, maybe somebody's using dowels or using something like a domino to join together two planks in a panel. This is the same idea where they're using these nails uh, in a sandwich to put together these, these CLT um, huge spans and things like that. Um, you know, Certainly, there's going to be limitations on this on the species that you're nailing. I would not try to drive a beach nail into hard maple. Um, may, maybe, I don't know, without a pilot hole, I would worry that it would crack the wood. Certainly wouldn't try to drive it into some of the exotics. You're not going to be installing your deck with beach nails um, unless you were to pre-drill that, that Ipe first. Um, maybe a pressure-treated pine? Yeah, you could probably do that. Um, 
that could be interesting because then you wouldn't have any of the possible staining from the fasteners. And granted, most deck screws are, are going to be stainless and they're not going to cause that problem. But you can think of a lot of siding applications where you can possibly get staining from the fasteners. These nails would be really cool for that. You know, how do they do into engineered substrates like particle board and plywood? I can't imagine they would be any different than moving into softwood framing lumber. So here again, I don't have any firsthand experience with this. I'm relatively new to the idea in general. I just thought it was a really cool idea taking, you know, a thousand year old idea of a wooden nail and modernizing it and putting it into a regular pneumatic nail gun. Very, very cool idea. But as I said, more than anything, it's just badass looking. And I think we all want one because it's just super cool. Um, I posted an image of the nailer on my Instagram uh, a couple days ago. So um, check it out. But I'll also post a link in the show notes that you can go and watch the video of this thing in use and all that fun stuff that comes with it. Moving on to emails. This is actually one of those wild card questions I was talking about. This actually came in via Instagram. And Aaron has uh, won a contract to build some park benches for a local city. And anytime you're doing public uh, government work, there are all kinds of um, specifications and restrictions and uh, certifications that have to be done. One of them is the fire rating. He's building benches in a public park. They have to have a carry a class A fire rating. Well, there are certainly the first thing that comes to mind is ePay. ePay has a class A fire rating, but you know, there, there's some other products, but mostly when you're talking about fire ratings, you're talking about engineered materials or modified materials because the engineering and modification process offers a certain amount of standardization, or maybe I should say consistency from one piece, one board to another, one sheet of plywood to another. What is an organic material? And it's really difficult to do a fire rating test or a flame spread test on, you know, say 10 boards and say, okay, these pass and therefore, you know, this species of wood now has a class A fire rating. So it doesn't really happen much. Um, there are several companies that have done the flame rating tests on ePay and it can say that it has a class A fire rating. But for instance, Sapili does not carry a class A fire rating. And I can tell you from personal experience, having dropped a, dropped a few scraps in my fireplace, the stuff doesn't burn. Well, I shouldn't say that. It does burn, but it get it has to get so hot before it will actually burn. And then once it actually does catch, you have to leave the room because it burns so hot. So yeah, not a safe thing, by the way, to put uh, sapili in your fireplace. Certainly a lot of sapili would be a bad idea. I, I'm, I think that they could probably cause damage to the average household. But you get my point. An organic material is very difficult to do to put a fire rating on because of the variance you're gonna find from one tree to another, from one region to another. So I say Sapili because Aaron actually bought Sapili for these benches and he's wondering what he can do. Is there um, you know, an additive or something like that? Well, it just so happens that the Flame Stop people, that's the name of the company, um, had come to us and said, are you aware of our product? And they gave us a couple of samples. So he reached out on Instagram and like, I happened to have a bottle of Flame Stop like sitting on my desk. So it was really, really good timing. And I wanted to bring this up because it is something that can be added and there are multiple products out there. He had pointed to a product on Amazon that looked very, very similar. I'm talking about Flamestop just because I happen to have a bottle of this stuff. Um, Flamestop.com, I believe is is the website, but look for um, fire rating or uh, fire safety um, uh, sprays, uh, fire safety treatments, things like that. You'll find all kinds of different products. The cool thing is, is this stuff is meant to be sprayed onto the raw wood. Do not do this after you've finished or you won't get the absorption. It soaks into the wood and it dries perfectly clear and it's finished safe. So it's not going to affect your finish. Supposedly, that's what they say. I haven't personally tested that. If it were me, I would test it on some scrap to make sure it's not gonna mess with my finish. But because it dries clear, you know, you can do whatever finish. You can do a clear coat finish, a paint finish or whatever. And it gives whatever it is you've just built <clears throat> a class A fire rating. Now, I know it dries clear because a lot of the contractors I work with, when they put this stuff up, like for stud framing or substrate um, sheathing or things like that, they specifically add a blue dye to the fire retardant spray so that they can see where they've added it. 
because it dries so clear, you just don't know. It's like, did you do that wall? I don't know. You know, is the wall blue? No, then you haven't sprayed it with fire retardant yet. So um, just something, kind of a, another arrow to keep in your, your quiver there for projects that, um, you know, you might be worried about fire safety or flame spread or, or you're having to meet a specific certification on a contract. So thanks for the question, Aaron. Um, I like those kind of weird ones. And it was just really, really interesting coincidence that I happen to have a bottle of stuff sitting on my desk when you wrote in. Scott wrote to me and said that uh, I've recently moved to southern Spain on orders from the military. Um, Rota, I guess, Scott, I would assume. I think the only other base in Spain is is a Moron, or excuse me, Moron, <laughs> Moron Air Base. Uh, but I think Rota is probably what we're talking about here. Um, if you don't know, Rota is in southern Spain on the coastline. It's a, it's a naval base. So, um, of course, it's on the coastline. I shouldn't say that. There are naval bases not on coastlines. But for the most part, they're on coastlines. So it's in the southern Spain region, um, bottom of the Iberian Peninsula. <clears throat> I bring that up. I bring up this geography lesson because Scott is um, trying to take his woodworking with him as he's been uh, deployed. He says, my plan is to focus on hand tool schools. Um, hand tool, hand tool skills, sorry, Freudian slip, um, as there really wasn't a good way for me to move large power tools, let alone finding a home large enough to set up a shop. I ended up bringing my workbench and a small amount of saws, chisels, and planes to keep my skills sharp. Haha, <laughs> pun intended, maybe. I haven't ventured out to purchase any lumber yet, but my observation is that Spain doesn't have many trees and the climate is more like a desert than what I was used to in Florida. Do you have any recommendations for finding good hardwood lumber here? It's kind of an open-ended question, but I figured it might spark an interesting discussion about purchasing lumber abroad. So I wanted to highlight this question because purchasing lumber is something that I get questions about all the time. I've done a, a series of podcasts on buying lumber, buying lumber online, and buying lumber a couple different ways, but I do think it's worth revisiting. First, um, my geography lesson here is, you know, Scott says it seems like it's kind of a desert. Well, southern Spain, yeah, um, it is going to be a Mediterranean climate. It's going to be hot. It's going to be dry. Um, you're not going to find a lot of forest. But actually, Spain has quite a bit of forest land. You know, um, it, it's quite a bit of altitude as well. The issue with Spain is it has this high um, plateau, you know, you go to the center of Spain, actually just look at like a satellite map of Spain and you will see kind of the, the red arid deserty looking section in the middle. And you're looking at, you know, Madrid um, in the whole center, you'll see that large high um, mesa there, a plateau. And as the land falls away from that central uh, plateau, it moves into some pretty lush forest land and high mountain forest land as you move into the Pyrenees. Uh, as you move west into Portugal, you've got quite a bit of forest land. And even on the south, you will have forest land as well. But because there's such a varied climate from one side of the Iberian Peninsula to the other, you actually end up with a pretty diverse um, species of, of trees. So you're going to find a lot of beech. You will find a lot of birch. But you also find a lot, a lot of oak, a lot of different versions of oak. Um, what we might call English brown oak or Quercus rubber um, or royal oak, I might say, um, comes up quite a bit. There's also all kinds of sub variants, chestnut oaks and uh, more oaks than I can than I can I've ever heard of for that matter. Um, on the south, and you might find this, Scott, if in fact you are in, in, in Rhoda, um, uh, olive. All along the Mediterranean climate, you're going to find olive trees. Now, olive trees are going to be grown specifically for the fruit, right? <clears throat> but you will find uh, in order to any fruit tree, whether it's apple or peach or, or olive, it has to be pruned regularly in order to optimize or maximize the amount of fruit with each harvest. So those prunings, the farmers go along and cut off these branches and those prunings will often be put up for sale or they can be had from the farmers directly. And to tell you, olive is one of the greatest woods to work. It's really oily. Just think of olives. It's really, really oily. It smells like olives um, as you're cutting it, which is quite pleasant, but it's just, it's got a lovely character and figure. 
It's not something, however, you're going to find in large boards because you're going to be dealing with prunings. But, you know, you're dealing with smaller areas and working with hand tools. Um, you might enjoy some of those smaller projects, maybe get into spoon carving or utilize olive as highlight pieces on small boxes or even as the sides to small boxes. It could be a particularly fun wood to work. So I would keep an eye out for those olive groves, which leads me to the how would you go about buying it? Reach out to the owners of those groves. You know, there, there's probably a place that's actually selling olives and you might actually talk to the farmer themselves and say, where did you get the olives? Is it your own grove, someone else's grove? Um, what do you do with those prunings? I'm a woodworker. I would be interested in those. They'd probably be willing to give them to you. Other species you can be looking at actually is Scots pine, sometimes referred to as Scotch pine. Um, we actually used to import this quite a bit um, at McIlvain. It's a pretty cool uh, species of pine. It's actually, I think, said to be the strongest species of pine. You're going to find it's similar in a lot of ways to southern yellow pine. You know, southern yellow is is much denser, much harder than like northeastern white or any of the firs that you might be used to. Scotch pine, um, very tough wood. Oftentimes, you can get it in really straight long lengths as well. Lots of Scotch pine or Scots pine all along the eastern side of the Iberian Peninsula up into the northern Pyrenean section. And you'll find quite a bit over on the, the western side on the border between Portugal and Spain as well. So there are definitely trees there. It just, you might be in a spot that there aren't a whole lot because of where you're located, which again leads me to believe that you're probably in Rota. Although my Geography is not the best. I know Moron, actually, I don't know Moron is. I want to say it's in central Spain. Uh, I remember flying into there um, on our way to Ramstein. Gosh, I mean, I was less than five years old at this point. So um, I know it's there because I landed there once. But if I remember correctly, I never even got off the plane as we transferred from there to Ramstein and then onto Dusseldorf. So yeah, hard to say. But the point is, Certainly you can look locally um, and there are, you're going to find that there are trees around. The other thing you have to think about, especially when you're in Western Europe, the history of lumber trade is deep, really deep. Like compared to us, you know, new kids on the block over here in North America, they've been trading lumber for a long, long time. You ever heard of the Dutch East India Company? <laughs> Yeah, Columbus and that gang. Yeah, they've been trading lumber since then. And um, in fact, as we import a lot of lumber from places like Africa and Brazil, we're often dealing with Western European companies that have been importing the lumber there for hundreds and hundreds of years. So you might have to do a little bit of digging, but I wouldn't be surprised if you were able to find some lumber yards that are going to have access to a lot of African woods and probably Asian woods and maybe even like certainly Southeast Asian woods, but maybe even some South American woods. Um, certainly Europe is a different story in general when it comes to um, the types of lumbers they're using. But what I've discovered is they're a lot more open to uh, secondary and tertiary species, whereas the North American market is super resistant to change and they only want to use the common stuff. Um, so you know, like a mahogany, um, we fought and fought and fought to get our customers to start using Sapili and Udali when genuine mahogany became CITES listed. And it took like eight years before Sapili kind of became the de facto. Well, now Sapili is a de facto. If you try to move anybody away from Sapili, they say, I'd rather quit. <laughs> I'd rather move out of the business entirely than do something other than Sapili. So once they do latch onto something, they hang on to it for dear life. Trying to use some of the other reddish woods or tertiary mahogany-like species has been next to impossible. But a lot of the British joinery shops that I know of, um, British yacht makers, things like that, they're all over these tertiary species. Um, Iroko is a good example. I've spoken about that as an alternative to teak. Can't get the boat builders in North America to look at it. Boat builders in Britain, they've been using Iroko for like 15 years. No problem. So I think you'll find a lot of species maybe you've never heard of, but look and act very similar to species you have heard of. Um, there's also a lot of European variants of what, you know, our North American species, our North American cherry, our North American oak, um, there and North American maple for that matter, hard maple, sugar maple, soft maple. There's going to be European variants to that as well. And do a little bit of digging, you might find them. But here's the key if you're not finding any lumber yards, you need to go to the people who are using wood. You need to talk to the contractors, you need to talk to the furniture makers and the cabinet shops and 
find out where they're getting their lumber and either source your lumber through them. They may be placing an order from a wholesale house somewhere else in Europe, and you might be able to tack on, you know, 100 board feet, 200 board feet to their order. Or you might be able to buy lumber directly from them, or you might even be able to get lumber for free from them from their scrap and offcut pile. A millwork house is going to have a scrap pile, and that scrap pile is going to be full-size boards for your average hobby woodworker. You know, anything under six feet long may be really difficult for that particular millwork house to use, but a six-foot board would be gold in the average hobby woodworker shop. So seek out to seek out the tradespeople that are using the lumber. If there are no lumber yards in your area, those people are getting their stuff somewhere. So they're probably buying larger orders, getting it shipped to them. Um, you know, more economically in larger volumes. So either tacking onto their order or, as I said, using their waste, their offcuts is a great way to go. And I know many, many people who've written into me and who said I took that advice and got lumber for free. I don't expect to get it for free. And even if you do get it for free, I recommend like tipping, um, giving them something, even if it's like buying them a six pack to thank them. You want to keep that relationship really, really good <clears throat> so that in the future, that person may be reaching out to you or they may be setting aside a board thinking, you know, hey, um, Scott really was thankful or Scott was, you know, so appreciative last time. Here's this piece of walnut. Let me set it aside for him. And next time he comes in, it'll be here for him. Those relationships can be fantastic. So Scott, definitely look around, you know, see what lumber yards are there. But even if there are lumber yards in your backyard, seek out the tradespeople. You would be really surprised how willing they are to help you um, find lumber, locate lumber, or even give you the lumber that they have on hand. So there's my number one lumber buying tip. And honestly, that doesn't matter if you're in the US, you're in Guam, you're in Thailand, or you're in Spain, the same thing applies. There are people out there working wood, building homes, laying hardwood floors, etc. So someone is sourcing lumber somewhere and somebody has offcuts. So thanks for the question, Scott. Um, those are my wild cards out of the way. The rest of them are really going to be focusing on this idea of wood extractives and wood staining and the enzymes and all the gooey stuff inside the boards that give us cool figure, but also make us scratch our head and go, what just happened to my wood? Why did it just change colors on me when I ran it through the planer? So I think it's best to start by kind of defining all of this. We, we've probably heard the term spalting. Uh, you may have heard mineral staining. Um, and you might have heard me mention extractives before. I've certainly talked about extractives on episodes in the past. So spalting simply is rot. Um, it's generally caused by a fungus. Um, it's very common in species like maple, beech, or birch, um, basically a lot of the white woods. Maple, especially because there is so much sugar in maple. I mean, the extractive for maple is maple syrup. And as the tree dies, um, the fungus will start to grow and you get those black lines. This can be encouraged. Um, this can also be created. There are many videos out there if you Google that you will find how to spalt your own wood. Spalting is certainly a natural process, but again, it's it's rotting. So if spalting goes too far, you end up with, you know, a mushy mess. In fact, there is a product called mushroom wood where uh, mushroom farmers that are growing, you know, you think about mushrooms, they need dark, damp places. And the boards that line these mushroom beds, um, they're taken out after years and they're essentially just a mushy, spalted mess. That stuff is then stabilized with some sort of resin um, and it's sold generally as a flooring. It kind of goes with that whole reclaimed um, barnwood siding, that gray weathered look of flooring, mushroom wood. It's heavily, heavily, heavily spalted, like 95% fungus wood. Um, yeah, in case one of those little facts that you didn't know and maybe you don't want to know, but yeah, spalting is, is that rot that you'll find. Um, Beetle kill, you may hear that as well. Um, that's also a type of spalting, 
But what it's actually caused by is um, you find this a lot of beetle kill pine, but it, not just pine, but the pine beetle is what's causing this. The, the blue fungus tends to be carried on the, the carapace of the beetle. So as the beetle lands on the tree and begins to eat the, the tree itself, not only will you see like uh, scars on the tree where the beetles have bored into it and eaten it, but the spores go off the carapace of the beetle into that wound that was just created as the beetle bored in and the fungus grows from there. So you'll see like blooms of, of spalting that kind of expand out radially from that initial borehole. And it's a pretty unique look. I just modified unique. Oh my, it's a pet peeve of mine. Not supposed to be modified unique. Sorry for all the grammarians out there. It is a unique look um, and generally uh, very prized as well. Beetle kill pine is huge in the flooring industry, but you'll find it a lot amongst turners, but also in um, uh, like, I think of smaller items like boxes and things like that, because it produces a really strong impact over a small area because of those like blooms of fungus coming out from those boreholes. So beetle kill is, is essentially spalting, but it's introduced by a foreign object, by that beetle actually boring into it. But then there's also just stains, and these stains can be from fungus. I mean, essentially, spalting while it's rotting is also a stain from that fungus. But stains in general are, are less um, pronounced, you know, whereas you might find spalting is this hard, like black, almost ink line in a wood. Um, the stain can just kind of spread out amorphously and it doesn't have hard defined edges. It might be a blue stain that just kind of subtly fades out into the rest of the wood. These stains certainly, again, are caused by uh, fungus, but usually in less, or excuse me, more spalting resistant wood. So rather than you getting that heavy rod, it just kind of blends itself. <laughs> Sorry for that pause. I'm trying to think of the right word. Um, it, it just kind of clouds it. That's that's maybe a better word. It's like the, a, a light shading over the wood because that spalting doesn't really grab hold or the wood is super, super dense and it's not really rotting uniformly. Um, but the other thing that happens is the enzymes in the wood itself can chemically react, whether that be to oxygen, whether that be to um, a, a foreign chemical, uh, water, <laughs> or um, you actually find people will actually uh, um, create staining by introduction of other chemicals. Potassium dichromate is one that can be used to darken mahogany. That is an enzymatic reaction is that a word? Enzymatic? Enzymatic? Enzymatic. I like that. Um, the potassium dichromate is, is reacting with the chemicals, the enzymes in the mahogany, and it creates a much, much deeper, almost deep orange color from that potassium dichromate. Naturally, this occurs from all the resins, all the oils, all the various enzymes, all the stuff that makes that wood species unique is reacting to create this. It can be moisture. It can be heat. Um, it can be a, a large number of things. In a lot of ways, it's not fully understood what creates this. Um, and many times when you see kind of a weird color blotch in, in wood, it's an enzymatic staining. And oftentimes we love it. Oftentimes it creates that character that we think of when we look at um, olive, for example. Olive's got that great kind of crazy figure and and you know deep dark lines and purple hues and some green hues and things like that and that's the various enzymes obviously olive is a very oily wood and all those oils are filled with chemicals that are reacting differently to the oxygen reacting differently to the moisture that's in the air i don't know why i was just thinking about oh i do know because i'm looking at a, a pen in a little pin cup across the room that it turned from olive. Um, also, I was talking about olive earlier with um, with Scott's question. There's a lot of woods out there. If you think of woods that, that show um, a lot of color and variation as they're milled, that's that enzymatic staining that happens. Teak, huge example of this. 
Cherry is is another example. You'll find um, those little pitch pockets, those gum pockets that you find in cherry. You'll find slightly different color variations around that cherry, especially, or excuse me, around that gum pocket, especially when it's first milled. Now that will fade due to oxidization over time and you don't really see it that much anymore. The lighter woods obviously present this more because they're lighter to begin with and that, that color change is more obvious in them. Um, walnut, all kinds of enzymatic staining going on there, which is one of the reasons that steaming has become a thing in order to kind of mellow some of that out. I talked about um, lumber steaming on, was it my last episode? Recently, I've talked about lumber steaming. So we have an understanding of, of spalting and, and staining and, and really what it is. So let's kind of get into some questions. Um, Darren <clears throat> said that, um, my question is about what some people call, quote, trash woods. I don't use the term because I believe it's all useful. Being in central Texas, we have hackberry and mesquite. Ranchers clear almost all the mesquite before reaching any usable size other than for the barbecue. I really like working with it when I can get it, and I'm sure that most agree with me. But I've been a hobby woodworker building furniture for 30 years, and I wanted to know your opinion of hackberry. I was able to get a few logs plain sawn at our local Sawyer about two years ago, and it's nearing my average shop lumber surface moisture level about 12 to 14%. It looks rough, but after a few runs through the planer, it appears grayish white, no spalting so far, and a nice grain pattern. <clears throat> so there's a couple things going on in this question here. I wanted to bring it up because of hackberry specifically is really, really prone to fungal staining, or I shouldn't say fungal staining, excuse me, enzymatic staining. Um, but let me, let me address the other question here <clears throat> about trash woods. <laughs> I, I love that term because we hear that uh, as well. My, um, my wife is an avid birder and they have the same term there. Oh, trash birds. Ah, oh, it's a blue jay, trash bird. <laughs> I love blue jays. They're lovely birds. They're kind of annoying, but they're beautiful. Um, <laughs> but it's a trash bird. Um, trash wood, I think, is in the eye of the beholder um, or maybe the eye of the feller. Uh, a good example of this, in, and actually Darren talks about it because uh, ranchers in Texas clearing the mesquite. What's your goal? You know, as a rancher, you need pasture land. Same thing happens in Brazil. The ranchers in Brazil consider a lot of very valuable rainforest woods to be trash wood because it's in the way of their pasture land. That genuine mahogany, the ipe, the masarinduba, um, it's all in the way and I got to clear it in order to make room for my cattle. <clears throat> the leading cause of deforestation in the world since the, the days of Cain and Abel has been ranchers. <laughs> it's not the lumber industry, folks. It's the people who view all the woods as trash wood because it's getting in the way of their cattle. So it's it's in the eye of the beholder. So trash wood, in this case, in central Texas, that mesquite is in the way. Um, mesquite is a gnarly, twisty, you know, low growing just because of the climate in Texas. So it doesn't really have immediate use for lumber. Or while it does have immediate use for lumber, it grows so slowly in that climate that you really couldn't make any kind of profit off of it. <clears throat> so when you get mesquite, it's generally smaller, it's gnarly and twisted, and it's got a, a whole lot of character and figure, which the commercial industry doesn't like for flooring or siding or anything like that, because there's no two boards really look alike. And it, it gets to be too busy when you side an entire house in, in mesquite, not that you could because of the size of the tree. So it doesn't immediately have that commercial value to lumber. So then it's like, well, what's it good for? You know, it's in the way, it's trash wood. The turners, the uh, saw handle makers. I know Mark Harrell at Bad Axe has been making quite a bit of saws out of, or saw handles out of mesquite. Cool wood for that. Um, again, it's just a matter of, of, of what, what you're looking for. What it is you're into is whether or not it's a, it's a trash wood or not. I'm sure that if I thought hard enough of about it, I could probably think of some woods that would be trash wood. And if I named some, I would immediately offend like half of the listeners. But first thing that comes to mind, I actually don't really have this opinion, but I have often myself referred to alder as a trash wood. I don't get a lot of alder on the East Coast. It's more of a Pacific tree. Some people will call it poor man's cherry. A lot of people just refer to it as trash wood. Um, those that have worked with alder will say, you know what? It's not that bad. Um, it's actually a really good wood. Um, those of us that uh, maybe don't get it all that much or have lots of access to like genuine black cherry may think of alder as a trash wood. Again, it's all in the eye of the beholder. In the end, it comes down to, is it commercially viable? Is it a species that we can get consistently in typical board lengths? Um, 
if it is, then it's definitely not a trash wood because we're making money on it. So anyway, I agree, Darren, let's not use that term um, because it's all, it's all useful for something. It's just a matter of finding the right application for it. Which brings me to hackberry, another species that while I've never heard of hackberry referred to as trash wood, it's a species that doesn't get a lot of respect because, well, I mean, it, it grows, it's got a wide geographic range. It pretty much grows across North America, but it's more prevalent in the South. It's going to do better in those warmer climes um, and, and in more, um, well, I shouldn't say more humid climes because it does quite well in, in arid areas as well. But I think like if you were to look in Texas, you're going to find it more in the humid areas of Texas than you would in the, you know, the dry desert-y parts uh, of Texas as well. Carolinas have a lot of hackberry. Um, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, all those places are going to have it. But you're also going to find it in Indiana. Um, you'll find a little bit in Michigan as well. So it's, it's really widespread, but it's not like you know, there's a stand of 30 hackberries. You know, there's a stand of trees and there's 30 maples. 30 oaks and two hackberries. Um, it's not going to be, and if you do find a stand of four or five of them together, they're you know dwarfed by the amount of oak and maple or, or cherry that are around it. So the consistency, the ability to find a lot of it for commercial use is something that doesn't, kind of holds it back. But let's, let's look at it. Let's look at the wood itself and see, you know, what, what are our opinions of it? So if you go to something like the wood database and just start looking at some of the specs, first thing I would look at is the Jenka hardness, 880 um, pound foot or PSI. So it's equivalent to like walnut or uh, black cherry as far as hardness. To me, that's a great furniture building wood. In my world as a hand tool user, that's a great hand tool wood. One of the things that's interesting about Hackberry is it is particularly good at steam bending. Um, the modulus of rupture and the elastic modulus are both kind of what you would expect. Uh, MOR is 11,000, uh, MOE is about 1.2 million. So pretty typical, but it's steam bends so incredibly well. I'd be willing to bet that there's a few Windsor makers out there that have used this material, um, and have been quite happy about it. The problem is again, just getting it. You know, the, 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 while the trees grow so many places, they just don't grow a whole lot of them that you can, um, you know, readily get it, or they're going to be surrounded by so many different oaks. And you might go with the oak over the hackberry. Um, the issue with hackberry, the one, uh, detractor is the staining that happens. So in his question, Darren said that, uh, it appears grayish white, no spalting so far. I don't think of hackberry as a wood that actually spalts that much. Not really naturally. You can, hackberry would be a good species of wood to use if you wanted to spalt your own lumber and would be prone to it because it does have a lot of, a lot of uh, sugars in it. In fact, one of the other species that gets lumped under hackberry is the sugarberry tree. So <laughs> sugar's in the name, folks. It's going to be prone to spalting. But what it does more than anything is stain. That grayish white you're talking about, the gray is actually staining. Um, normally, you could actually confuse hackberry with ash. It's got that white look. It is a ring porous wood as well, very much like ash, and it could be very easily mistaken for ash. What usually is the giveaway is that grayish tinge to it because hackberry will start staining almost immediately after it's felled. If you want to keep hackberry from staining, you've got to get it in a kiln right away. In a lot of ways, hackberry is very much like holly. Holly is prized for that pure white color, but holly stains and goes gray if you look at it crooked. You have to fell the holly in winter, you have to saw it into boards and get it in the kiln all on the same day, or it will start staining on you and you lose what you're actually Holly's prize for that pure white look. Hackberry is going to be the same way. The funny thing about hackberry is it's almost like we want it to stain because most people associate hackberry with that grayish white color, when in actuality, it's really more of a white wood than a gray wood. So I actually think because it's staining and not spalting, I actually think hackberry is a pretty cool wood for that because you're getting that grayish look without it weathering. You know, all wood's going to turn silvery gray. Hackberry, as it ages, hackberry's already that color. So it gives you that kind of rustic 
you know, old barn wood look fresh from the planer, um, which is pretty interesting. The other thing that I should mention about spalting versus staining is I feel that staining runs deeper than spalting. You know, spalting, uh, as the fungus begins to rot the wood, it kind of follows various, uh, follows the grain lines itself. Usually what it does is follow that late growth line, the denser wood, and it's the softer early wood that's, that's rotting first. So you get those stark lines that follow the grain. Staining spreads out amorphousness of the wood in all directions. So staining runs super, super deep. So no matter how much you plane a hackberry board, it's pretty much going to be gray throughout where that staining has occurred, which gives you a certain amount of um, reliability. If you really like how that looks, um, you don't really have to worry about it going away as you plane the board thinner or as you begin to sand it or something like that. The staining is, is in the wood and you can't really get rid of it easily. But like holly, hackberry... Is it fungal staining or is it enzymatic staining? Most botanists seem to think that it's an enzyme causing it more than a fungus. Um, Same thing in in holly as well. Because when they take samples of the stuff and they test it, there's no um, evidence of spores. There's no evidence of fungus in the wood. It's just whatever those extractives are, whatever those fun gooey enzymes are reacting to the moisture, to the heat, um, and to the oxygen causing that staining. So this is a really, really long-winded answer, Darren. Um, my opinion is I like it. Um, I've only ever turned the stuff. I've never gotten pieces large enough to build anything out of it, but it, it works very much like ash, um, except that it's quite a bit softer. Um, but it has that same ring porous, larger pore feel. It is a bit more interlocked because it's actually in the elm family. Um, so you'll find that it doesn't exactly split real well, um, which is interesting because hackberry often is sold as firewood. Um, <laughs> I think most firewood companies are using pneumatic log splitters anyway. So um, I, they don't really care how well it splits because it doesn't matter. Everything splits under uh, under a pneumatic log splitter. But I... I think it's great. I think if you're in an area where you're getting a fair amount of the stuff, use it. Um, it certainly is going to give you a unique look. And that gray look right out of the planer is actually a, a pretty rare thing. And you can take advantage of that. Uh, so Chris goes on uh, with his question to talk more about staining. Um, but this is a slightly different kind of staining. Uh Chris builds a lot with pallet wood, um, and he says that it's 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 been interesting um, because it's he often finds there's so many different types of wood used in pallets, and identifying them can be kind of fun. But the one issue he says that I have yet to find a solution for is nail holes. These are often surrounded by blue stains, especially in oak. I've tried hydrogen peroxide and bleach, but these stubborn stains just won't come out. On the more serious projects, I just use the lumber between the nail holes, which works fairly well. But there are times when I'd be happy to just put in some small plugs cut from the same board. Um, But again, those stains get in the way. Along the same vein, when I'm working with some species, butternut seeming to be the worst so far, my hands end up staining the wood with that same blue-purple cast. My hands come out stained the same color as well. So what's going on here? Um... You're talking about external stimulus here that's causing this staining. And here again, it's staining, it's not spalting. Um, you know, that, that hard, defined, spalted line is not here. We're talking about a more amorphous bloom coming from a central area. Well, the staining from the nails, that's the iron in the nails. Um, it's it's a, a ferrous reaction to the tannins in the wood. Oak, as, as um, Chris said, is notorious for this because oak has a very, very high tannin content. It's one of the reasons that oak can be great for ebonizing. You put a little bit of you know, you know, vinegar or steel wool and vinegar and wipe that on the, on the oak and you're going to have black. Um, the same thing you're getting from those nail holes. As the nail is driven into the wood, much like beetle kill pine, The beetle bores a hole and the spores on the carapace of the beetle infect the wood from inside out. And you get that bloom of staining that comes from that hole. The nail, the iron in the nail is reacting with the tannins in the wood and it's staining the wood. And in many instances, you'll find that the stain not only is a bloom around the nail hole, but it runs down from the nail hole because as rainwater 
runs across that board, it's also washing and leaching the tannins and the iron from that nail down with gravity. So those stains will actually run straight down the side of the board if there's been a fair amount of rainfall um, as, as those nails have rusted. That, like enzymatic staining, runs deep and you can't really plane it away. I mean, you could. <laughs> you might end up with an eighth inch thick board, but it probably you're still going to find that it's on both sides of the board because that staining is so pervasive. Hydrogen peroxide, I don't think so. I don't think you're going strong enough there. Oxalic acid, also known as wood bleach, may be the way to do this. Depending on how aggressive that staining is, you will find that it may just mellow it and not remove it entirely. It also depends heavily on the wood. Oak, again, very, very high tannin content. We actually rely upon that tannin content when it comes to things like whiskey and wine. We need that in order to make whiskey and wine. That's an extractive. Tannin would be an extractive from um, that species that we use to our advantage. So, you know, if there's minimal amount of staining from the fastener, oxalic acid will go a very, very long way, could remove it entirely. But again, you're talking about a much more caustic solution than just regular old hydrogen peroxide. So you got to be uh, a little bit more careful about that. Um, and, and how you're handling it and lots of ventilation and all that stuff. The, the true fire way to do this, you've already mentioned, cut around those sections um, um, because you might find that staining may not be visible on the surface in an adjacent area, but it could be visible a little bit deeper down into the wood as you plane it. The next thing is he talks about staining from his hands. Um, butternut, it's interesting because I've worked a fair amount with butternut and I have not found this. So I did a little bit of digging on what some of the enzymes were in butternut. And, um, you know, butternut, if you don't know, also known as white walnut, it's a direct cousin to black walnut. It's the um, same genus, the Euglens genus. Well, I didn't know this, um, but the reason that that genus is Euglens, if I'm saying that right, Juglans, J-U-G-L-A-N-S, that's the genus is because of the prominent enzyme that's actually in that genus of woods. Um, uh, the hickories can fall under this, uh, bitternut, um, mocknut, pignut, all the, those fun hickories, but also the walnuts and the butternuts have an enzyme called Euglensiae. Again, probably not pronouncing that correctly, but it is very, very high concentrations of it in butternut. Interestingly enough, this is uh, an extractive that's used for making laxatives. So don't lick your butternut, people, unless you're close to the bathroom. <laughs> or if you're stopped up, lick your butternut. <laughs> it might be really helpful there. Um, but when you look into that particular enzyme, that particular extractive, you will find that <clears throat> there can be um, some reaction to uh, other resins and oils that can create staining. Well, what is a great source of resins and oils? Our hands. If you've ever uh, been to a museum, like one of those museums that allows you to uh, touch the artifacts, everything will be super, super shiny and smooth. Uh, I was a tour guide in a cave for a while in high school, a place called Cave of the Winds in Colorado Springs. I think I might still know the whole tour by heart, actually. <laughs> but there would be sections of the cave where... Uh, you know, no one was allowed to touch things because they're fragile, but most of it in the open section, people were allowed to touch things. And as you walk through it, all the rock formations would be super shiny and polished. And it was from thousands and thousands of tourist hands rubbing over that rock. Ooh, look how shiny it is. And it got shinier and shinier and shinier. So more and more and more and more people said, Ooh, look how shiny it is. And all those hand oils um, basically reacted with the um, calcium carbonate in that stalagmite or whatever, or if it was a stalactite, if they're reaching up to the ceiling and it made it super polished and shiny, it would also stain it and change the color a little bit. Look at a vintage hand plane and you'll find, you can actually in many instances see a handprint where a craftsman has used it for many, many years and the oils in their hands have actually stained and polished the wood there. So in the instance of this Euglensier, um Extractive. I think one might actually lump it as a type of tannin as well. It is pretty prevalent in butternut. So, you know, 
Chris, I'm not exactly sure what's on your hands. <laughs> maybe you've got a lot more in, in, in the oils in your hands than I do. Um, maybe I'm not, maybe I'm not uh, caressing my butternut enough. Uh, maybe if I caress my butternut more, I'll get more staining. But I have seen this in, in other woods. Um, it actually shows up quite a bit in Purple Heart. We all know Purple Heart for that um, bright, bright color. But if you were to lay your hand on Purple Heart, especially on like a hot, humid day like you get around here in Maryland, and if you hold your hand on there for like a minute or so, you will actually see a palm print when you come away. It's the oils in your hands reacting to the enzymes in the wood, creating that staining. Now, in most instances, it doesn't run particularly deep and it's something that can be planed away. Um, but if you're already, say, you're carving butternut, you're kind of wanting to work with the finished surface there. So the solution is going to be to wear gloves, you know, you know, not not mittens or anything, you know, put on like thin nitrile gloves like you might use for finishing and that will prevent that from happening. But that's a perfect example of enzymatic staining. <clears throat> the enzymes in the wood, in this case, the Euglen CA, whatever we're pronouncing that, is reacting to the oils in your hand and the oxygen and possibly the temperature in your shop. You might see that this happens more when the shop is hotter, um, and that, that staining is going to show up a lot more. So it's something to be aware of if you're actually seeing that staining. And I think carving, you would find this a lot because oftentimes the palm of your hand is resting on the wood as you're manipulating the carving gouge. And you could be pressing down on the wood pretty heavily and not really realizing it, creating a fair amount of heat, but also causing that oil to flow from the palm of your hand into the wood. I think the real catalyst and a lot of this is heat heat and moisture certainly <clears throat> that's causing these reactions to to well catalyze to to start um and carving i think would definitely be prone to that because you're you're putting a, a, a lot of pressure for a good period of time you know i mean if you're chopping out a mortise you're not really touching the wood that much and it's a relatively quick action but if you're carving you know a fan or a recessed carving of some sort you're going to be leaning on that wood and and you know hand to wood contact for a substantial amount of time and i think that's pretty typical that you might see that but there again perfect example of of enzymatic staining um as compared to fungal staining or rot or spalting Interesting stuff. What is fascinating, folks, when you really start to dig, if you have a specific species that you're encountering, do a little bit of Googling and oftentimes you will find, um, like in this instance, when I was looking up um, butternut, I ran across uh, a book. Oh, shoot. What's the book called? Extractives in Eastern Hardwoods, a review. And this is essentially a scholarly journal on Google Books, but I was actually able to review the whole thing, did a little bit of searching, and I've got a, a really in-depth, uh, lots of words that I can't pronounce, um, not since I took organic chemistry anyway, have I been able to pronounce these words, and there's some fascinating stuff that's going on here. So gotta love wood. It keeps you on your toes, um, whether you're buying it in Spain or you're buying it here in North America, whether you're staining your wood uh, by accident or you're trying to do it on purpose through, you know, creating your own spalting. It's so cool because every board's unique. Every species has its own unique characteristics and it will definitely keep you guessing. So with that little bit of, of whimsy, I will leave you this week and just say again, thank you all for listening. Thank you for your questions. Just really, really fun that we get to kind of dive down these deep holes with some of these questions. So keep them coming, folks. If you have questions, you can email me at lumberupdate at gmail.com. You can even record and send voicemails that way. You can reach out to me on Instagram. Uh, I'm lumberupdate on Instagram. And on lumberupdate.com, there is actually a contact form that you can use to send in your questions that way as well. Keep them coming. I love getting them. I love responding to them. And I love the ones that I get and I go, I have no idea. And they force me to dig and research a little bit more into enzymes and extractives and things like that. So uh, happy lumber buying, everyone. Go buy some lumber.